Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Mike Puang Malai. Uh, he writes Non-Gap, uh, the newsletter, great Twitter account. He's a master in the dark arts of corporate governance, comes from a background in activism, now doing some uh, software engineering development. We're going to talk to him about what the nexus is between tech and finance right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? So, in, I'm really well, thanks. In full disclosure, uh, we, record, we, we spent 20 minutes chatting. I didn't record it. Uh, so, we're going to have to get you to do take two. I know a little bit more about your background now, so let me guide the conversation a little bit. You, start, you, you went to USC for your undergrad? I did. I went to SC, studied uh, international relations and international business. Uh, sounds fancy, but it was really just a great excuse to spend a lot of time overseas studying abroad. Um, you know, had a great time there. Uh, unfortunately, I skipped out on all the traditional recruiting, so came back without a job. And, um, you know, I've arguably been meandering ever since. And so you, you, uh, you went you, you were in uh, government for a little while, non... Uh, how, how do you describe it, sorry? So, uh, when I came back, I, you know, originally was going to go back overseas to Thailand for a job, but um, that got rescinded because of a government coup, which is its own interesting story. Um, so, ended up actually doing one of my other passions, which was social enterprise and nonprofit and you know spend a spend a bunch of time you know working on charter schools and and trying to build businesses that also have um, social missions so you know today that's pretty hot and it's pretty you know on trend uh, whatever that means but you know back then there weren't many people working on that sort of stuff and it, it was really cool learned learned a lot and you know the the world of nonprofit is just as uh, interesting arguably you know cutthroat in their own way, especially when it comes to fundraising as, as the corporate world. So, um, you know, actually learned a lot more uh, from that kind of power dynamic, um, you know, decision-making framework than, than even I expected at the time. But, um, you know, did that for about a year. And uh, as, as everyone, you know, who gets into investing uh, seems to do, they all read about Warren Buffett and the light bulb turns on and, and you decide you want to be an investor, and that, you know, me being as naive as I was at that age, I, I thought I could just go from nonprofit to to investing straight away. So I, uh, you know, quit and and then you know ended up uh, doing a lot of door knocking and cold emails until I, I forced this fund in Pasadena, First Wilshire Securities, to give me an interview, and um, you know somehow some way they they gave me a job and. And, and, you know, I was a deep value, small cap analyst intern for, for about um, six months or so. And what era, what vintage is that? Oh, this was the, this was the heart of small cap value. This was, was just like ripping? The, ripping. Like we're talking 2005, 2006, where I think anyone and their mom had a hedge fund and, and, and all the hedge funds had just, you know, quirky, cool names and, um, you know, it, it's funny cause you know, back then small cap deep value had kind of a different meaning. So like back then, you know, in the early two thousands, you can find, you know, these unfollowed stocks that are, I mean, they're small, but you know, the grown EPS 20%, you know, year over year and they're trading single digit PE. And like, I mean, literally you're just kind of looking around like, is, is this real? Like, is this for real? And, um, you know, it obviously that that strategy worked for for a long time. So this was very much, um, you know, the heyday of, of that style, and probably you know, pr 
probably the most desired type of strategy, I think, at the time. Yeah, that small crowd. cap small cap activism was just red hot. Everybody was everybody was a small cap activist on the back of like I think uh Dan Lowell writing the the nasty letters which he says or Robert Chapman said he got from him, who's another who was another LA based guy yeah. at the time. Um but you, you, you managed to transition from small cap value into uh pretty big activism with relational. How did that come about? Oh, that was uh so I, I think a recurring theme of, of my life and my career is I don't think anyone has actually hired me through the front door of anything. So you know, how, you know, any question around how did that happen? It was probably because I accidentally or serendipitously, you know, met someone who made an introduction and, and took a shot on me. And, uh, you know, at first Wilshire, so one of the one of the more interesting kind of random observations I've had in life is when it comes to investing is you know my background's kind of all over the place it's kind of eclectic it's not one of those you know McKinsey Bain Goldman for a few years and you know MBA and and just kind of that pattern recognition of of um you know what you look for 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 an analyst um, I was kind of all over the place and but what what I've learned is some of the best I mean, I don't know how they do it. Some of the best investors in the world that I've interacted with just seem to know how to extract the pattern, right? They don't need the pattern recognition per se, but they can kind of suss out and pull out an interesting insight that maybe I didn't even contemplate or I, I don't assume someone would recognize. And then they're able to kind of build a view of, okay, this person is good for the job or not. And back then, you didn't have much of a choice if you're if you're a PM, right? Like it, it wasn't it wasn't something like you can call up you know a bunch of head. Well, kinda you could call a bunch of headhunters, but you know back then you still had to you know it, it's highly competitive, right? You still had to find talented people wherever they were, and I mean you know, a, a PM's ability to interview a candidate seem or for me seems to kind of align with their ability to figure out stocks uh, just as a random aside. So just just for folks who don't know, relational uh, relational closed down about two thousand fourteen fifteen, but they had raised some backing from Calpers, were sort of a uh, contrast to many of the louder forms of activism at the time, sort of more constructive behind the scenes, um, probably more listed private equity rather than uh, that sort of just sell yourself or pay out the money or we're going to embarrass you until you do the right thing. So what, what, what was your experience at Relational? And is, is that a fair characterization of who they were? So Relational, I mean, you could probably break up Relational into different eras. Um, so they started in the mid-90s uh, as, as part of kind of a CalPERS initiative to get more um, investing, uh, governance-centric um, investing into the market. So they had their focus list. Calpers did, and, and they wanted to kind of elevate that into a, a more, you know, productized investment type uh, strategy. And they, they seeded a bunch of funds. Uh, Relational was one of them. So early on, you know, a lot of the agenda and activism um, was kind of uh, event event driven in, in, in the sense that, you know, you're talking mid nineties, there, there were a lot of companies that had the classic good business, bad business model. And you can literally, you know, all the money was made in one business. All the losses were another, you know, spin it off, stop it. Like literally like very basic strategy, but they were all over the place. So I would say a good chunk of, you know, relationals early years were tied to that kind of, um, of investing in, in agenda. Now it wasn't, they were probably more in their in your face uh, back when they started, but over time, you know, the strategy got arbed out, right? Um, it's even today, it's it's not like you can find a company that has, you know, just this conglomerate discount where you do the. Oh, there are a few of those around. <laughs> well, there is that. That's true. I you know I, I laugh because you know it's a running joke. Like don't don't come in and pitch us some of the parts discount, you know, to to a fund, but. You know, relational is probably one of the few places where you can get away with that because you were the catalyst, right? Like you yeah. were the one that actually, yeah, you can pitch that here because we're we're gonna be the ones that work with them to try to unlock that that value. So that that was very much a uh, 
uh, a traditional bread and butter type um, strategy for a long time. But to kind of complement that, yeah, we, we try to work with team uh, companies behind the scenes, right? Um, help them with their investor communications, how they kind of convey the story to uh, the street, how to think about capital allocation, all the kind of you know, good stuff that uh, investors are looking for when it comes to management teams and, and you know, discipline capital allocation. We, we try to work with them uh, behind the scenes. Your uh, note on relational has these two nice charts in it that very similar to something that Buffett has said in the past. But basically, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, return on invested capital and a growth rate that justify these sort of valuation multiples. And if you're sitting outside that sort of optimal point on the structure, you shouldn't be growing. You should be trying to do something else. You should be trying to pay out some capital or sort of right size. Um, was that sort of the way that relational thought about those positions before they went in? I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think if, if you were to kind of capture like what is kind of an overarching um, concept that we're trying to you know, think about, it, it's that friction between growth and return, right? Like if you over optimize for return, you're not properly investing in, in the company, you're, you're potentially killing your, your innovation pipeline, which hurts you longer term. We don't you know, want you to do that. If you, you chase growth, or if, if you over-optimize for growth, you get to a point where um, you, you, you get into these highly dilutive transactions that destroy a lot of value, and suddenly you know, the market begins to assume, well, if you're going to keep burning you know, money and, and doing bad deals or, or chasing you know, bad R&D projects, we're just going to assume you're going to do that, you know, project it out and, and apply a discount to that incremental uh, capital allocation. So the, the friction is... Um, you know, what is what is the right balance there, right? And and I would say the market is generally pretty forgiving, up to a certain extent. But if you start doing, you know, if if you're if you're an executive and and you're you know, you're running your strategy, you're you're trying to prioritize highest and best use of your capital, you can you can get away with with risk. Um, you absolutely can. Uh, and and sometimes you know the market will actually forgive you on on a few bad deals. But at a certain point. If, if you're doing bad deals and there's just not a proper framework in place to kind of justify, you know, the risk you're taking on, it, uh, you know, the valuation starts getting a pretty, you know, punitive, you know, multiple. Um, and, and our job, at least at Relational, was to go, listen, we, we don't, we're not experts in, in what you're doing and, and what you're prioritizing. So, you know, work with us, help us understand what you're trying to do. And, and where we can be helpful is we can help you, you know, communicate how those priorities are important, or on the other hand, we can also, um, you know, put together kind of an investor communication program that that helps, you know, the market understand what you're trying to do. Um, on the other end, if 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 we try to you know figure out what's going on and we just kind of recognize, no, you're just actually burning <laughs> capital here. Uh, we're going to insist that you you stop, or or you know try to uh, reassess how you want to do that. Uh, otherwise. Um, you know, taking kind of the ownership's perspective as, as a shareholder, you know, we'll, we'll seek board representation. And, and if, if we can't figure it out from the outside, then maybe we can work together from the inside to, to come up with a, you know, a cohesive um, plan. And did you, uh, you've, you've got this great series, which we're going to go through in a moment on your, on your blog about uh, mm -hmm. corporate governance and the dark arts of corporate governance. Is that the, the the basis for your for that series is that where you learned about the dark arts of corporate governance you know it's uh it, it's an interesting question so when, when i started at relational back in 2006 i would say the first and, and you know at the time you like i didn't really enjoy it like i don't think anyone enjoys reading a proxy if, if they tell you they enjoy reading a proxy they're they're either lying to you or I haven't met you, which is kind of weird because I'm probably the only person that likes reading proxies at this point. But There are a handful of folks, right? Once you once you read them and you start finding where all the little tricks and traps are, they start getting a little bit more interesting, but they're hard to read cold. But that's why I think your series is so good. So the, you know, so the first four years at Relational, I would probably say 80 plus percent of my time was reading proxies, going through governance. Um, you know, trying to understand, you know, incentive structures and, you know, literally do like 
doing comps and, and doing all that. Now, in, in hindsight, that was a blessing, right? It, it was one of those things where it actually, you know, helped me, you know, as an investor longer term. But at the time when you're, you know, 20 something years old, you're, you're starting your investing career, you want to, you want to build financial models. You want to value stuff, right? You, I want to, I want to build the Excel breakup model of this company. Like, why am I looking at proxies? And, um, to keep myself entertained, at some point, like you're going to go crazy reading a proxy. If you're right, like if, if you're reading a proxy, like just for the dryness, you're going to go crazy. So, um, eventually like you start to realize there's there's a whole narrative behind what's going on and what's getting expressed in in those filings and, and in those governance documents and and it really doesn't get hammered um into you until you actually go on to these boards and so you know at relational when we go on a board um we have board representation but someone like me would be completely in charge of going through every board document that you know would be given to the director and, and to break down and do an analysis and to kind of understand like what are, you know, from a board level's perspective, what, what are the priorities uh, going on at these companies? And, and as you kind of like understand how, you know, organizationally how companies operate and, and how they're governed, you, you start to realize kind of the intersection and the relationship between what you're trying to prioritize as a business and, and how you want to allocate capital and, and how that expre gets expressed in in the incentive structures and, and governance. And I, at least after four years of of doing that, you begin to realize, oh, there's a story to be told here. There there are subtle adjustments that people make when you know you know good you know good news is on the way. There's subtle adjustments you can make when bad news is on the way. There's subtle you know adjustments you can make to retain talent. I mean, there's all sorts of um, different uh, tips and tricks you can do. And, and what you learn is, you know, as a board member, you can't really you can't really do much to drive change you know, in the organization. So there are only so many levers uh, you can use. But those levers are very powerful. They're really powerful because you change an incentive structure on a management team. You'd be surprised how much change occurs within an organization it just cascades down it's almost uh, you, you, you almost it, it's almost i mean it leaves me speechless sometimes like wait you're telling me if i just change the compensation hurdle from like say revenue growth to a blend of you know revenue growth and roic that this is actually going to change like you know priorities in an organization and the answer is yes <laughs> it does and it's it's remarkable so you know using using those experiences and, and realizing that you know proxies are are probably one of the last few places where you know, you know boards kind of express their intent and management teams um you know express who they are uh it, it becomes a very interesting um you know uh, source of of reading but also a source of understanding um you know what is the true story of, of this company right like I love your I love your approach to it, where you say that reading these things is very dry. But if you uh, if you understand the dark arts, you understand why things are being done. Then it does become much more interesting, and you can sort of dig through to find the story. And you say that uh, that they're dark arts because compensation can be used to distort the alignment of incentives and can be used to control what goes on in the company. And you've got the great story about uh, Ben Horowitz and the the option backdating scandal. Do you want to tell that story? Sure. I mean, you know, so I think one of the recurring themes you'll you'll come across when it comes to governance or even decision making at the highest level. So, like, I focus on governance because I find it interesting, but I think this is just decision making in general at, at a lot of these companies. Um, what you'll find is more often than not, you'll come across a situation where the correct answer isn't you know, straightforward. It's not black and white. You might even feel uncomfortable. And um, from a kind of moral dilemma or ethical perspective, and, and more often than not, the the pushback or the response you're going to hear from someone is, well, this is best practice. This is standard practice. This was signed off by the lawyers, the advisors, you know, X, Y, and Z peers do it. And, um, uh, and, and that makes it okay suddenly. And, and I think, you know, the Ben Horowitz story is basically, you know, 
and obviously this is secondhand because I'm just going off off the blog he wrote, but he you know he talks about a time when he brings in you know uh, new leadership, and um, from a kind of competitive retention uh, perspective, uh, this person recommends. Um, more or less options backdating, right? This, this is a way to incentivize and keep employees motivated uh, because you know, their, their strike prices will be based on you know, some lower price backdated than when they actually granted. And at the time, um, you know, the argument was, you know, this is signed off by, by you know, everyone, uh, the industry does it, it's okay. PwC blessed it, I think, in that particular I think instance. PW, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, bless the accountants who, who sign off on <laughs> on these things. Um, so you know what he did, and and uh, like you come across this all the time. He he said, you know what, like this sounds great, but but let me let me talk to my general counsel on on, on this and and see what he what what he thinks. And and what ends up happening is the general counsel who who Ben kind of describes as kind of this you know strong you know moral backbone really kind of like a i think he was like a berkeley based very like yep. you know you values driven guy and he was like you know i've looked at this every single you know angle i can i just don't i just don't think you can do this I, I i'm not signing off on this and and ben you know like and this is this is a great lesson for a lot of people like make sure you have um you know that person or that voice you trust that's willing to you know be the straight shooter and, and tell you how they think it is. And, and you trust him enough where it's like, he, he doesn't have an agenda. He, he believes in this and, and it's uh you know, it's great. He, you know, Ben had that resource and, and they ended up not doing the backdating and, um, you know, saved them a lot of, you know, a lot of trouble. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it was the general counsel that does it. Cause when, <laughs> you know, a lot of times when you, when you get into the dark arts or, you know, just kind of, you know, fluid uh fluid judgment within uh governance more morally fluid judgment odds are you're going to run into a general counsel that uh, made uh you know made the call to sign it off and um you know that i i always joke that there's always one fixer or there's usually a lot of fixers within these corporations and uh, and more often than not like the general counsel is a fixer and 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 get stuff done both good and bad but um he he had an he had an an interesting construction because the general counsel reported directly to him rather than through the cfo and it was the cfo who was recommending this particular option backdating blessed by pwc and standard practice in the industry and ultimately she went to jail for something that had happened at her previous employer where they had been using this for three and a half months and uh, they missed it because they didn't implement it. So it's kind of like, I, I read that and I was kind of shocked. I didn't realize that folks actually ended up going to jail for that. So I was, uh, it was kind of shocking. But it kind of reinforces how important it is to get to understand that it's more than just a box checking exercise. And there really is some, um, there's some nuance to reading these things, which you seem to have uh, done really well. So you talk about using compensation. The two mechanisms are spring-loading options and bullet dodging and then i've got you there's this great part in your note where you say this is why we use so you you, you illustrate it all through case studies and you say the reason we use case studies is because there's uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna mangle what you wrote and folks should go and read it because it is so great but you say that there's some of these things are so nuanced it's impossible to kind of articulate them the way that you have to learn about them is just by doing lots of reps reading lots of case studies participating in them too and the, the two examples you give are Sexing chicks and World War Two spotting. Do you want to tell those stories? <laughs> um, so, th- I mean, this is my personal opinion when it comes, you know, you can probably, you know, mechanically get, um, you know, a lot of the spring loading and bullet dodging dynamics down. But, you know, it compensation analysis is is very basic theory. Um, type approach where you, you kind of have to blend what is what is the investor perspective how how is management thinking about this business from a you know strategy execution operations perspective and then blend it in with governance and blend it in with with compensation so um, kind of going back to sexing chicks or you know recognizing you know the right bombers are coming in um, to really kind of, at least for me, learning to really kind of appreciate what what is signal versus what is noise, 
it, it really comes down to um, recognizing when when are these grants truly telling you that there's some bullishness or bearishness going on and and the only way for for me to learn that was to literally research the companies do fundamental analysis do all the things that you know all the investors do to try to understand um you know the company and the value opportunity there and then take that experience and then blend into how well how do you incentivize management teams to do what you think um is necessary to execute and so um that dynamic is kind of open-ended, right? How, like, if I were to ask you, okay, you're you're the board member on, um, you know, on some company you want to incentivize or, or reward management for certain things, what what can you do? And and the answer is very broad. And so, w- when we talk about you know sexing chicks or or you know <laughs> recognizing you know the sound of bombers, it's it's literally like you're looking at you're look you're taking at bats and you're looking at pitches, right? It's 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 almost teaching someone to recognize how to recognize a curveball. It's like you can explain it, but best way to do is like get in the batter's box. You know, I'll I'll stand you know from the umpire's view and like throw the pitch. Like, what do you think that was? Like, oh, that was you know that was a fastball. Okay, what's this pitch? Oh, that's a curveball. And and so you get this dynamic where it's like, okay, now you recognize what the pitch is. Can you anticipate what the pitch is? That's a little bit harder, right? That that requires a little bit more mentoring. Where it's like, okay, well, what what kind of pitch do you think if you get you know a two zero count? Well, well, they're probably not going to throw a curveball. You know, it'll probably be a fastball. And and it's that anticipation, that kind of in game you know situational awareness that requires a little bit more training, um, or at least for me, it required a little more training. So just, when just that at, it's it's too subtle, right, to articulate it. You have to yeah. with sexing chicks, you can't tell somebody what to look for. They just have to guess on the first few, and then after a while. The, the the apprentice understands it with the, with the master standing over their shoulder saying that was wrong that was right that was wrong that was right and after a while they get this uh, they can understand they can understand what what it is that they're doing and they're getting it right more often than not even if they still can't articulate what it is that is the difference between one and the other I just thought it was a fascinating kind of uh, example yeah I, and I think you know at, at a certain point and and this is where you know when people ask, well, how, how can I get better at this? It's like, well, what, what industries are you comfortable with? Uh, okay. We'll start there and start looking at those compensation programs. And, and over time you, you'll start to kind of connect you, your familiar, how you're familiar with, with the strategy in the business with how, how they're compensating uh, people. And, and then you start picking up, you know, different nuances like, Oh yeah, the stocks you know struggling because there's expectations that you know demand's going down, but all of a sudden they move grants up six months, and it's like, why would you move grants up six months on compensation? I thought, you know, uh, demand is weak, and then you realize, no, the stock is pricing in demand is weak. They just told you that there's maybe demand's coming. not. Yeah, there's something probably not as weak as you think, and so you you kind of bring it together and. You know, in hindsight, and you know, after the fact, it's it's easy to explain, um, and, and with the hope that okay, eventually you can start picking this stuff up in real time. Because if if you do it correctly, and and I've, this has been true, even as I openly talk about this stuff, it's for whatever reason, it's still true. You will find situations where stocks will just pop, you know, 10, 20, 40, 50 you know, percent on on this sort of stuff, and I, you know. It's hard to kind of you know, take a systematic approach to it, at least for me. But you, you get a hand, you identify a handful of those situations every year. I, I think it's fair to say your portfolio is going to do fine. Right? So you, you give the example of TPG and J Crew, and you say the first thing that TPG often does is they chair the compensation committee. And then you look at the equity. the the, the important The key thing is equity grant dates, and you you have this great analysis on it. Do you want to take us through that uh, that that example? Uh, we can't we can't have a podcast without talking <laughs> about TPG. So, kind of going back to my early years at Relational, just kind of talking about looking at a bunch of um, proxies. So it just kind of backs where Relational takes a very concentrated approach to to the portfolio. So we might only hold like eight to 12 names um, across, you know, uh, two funds. Um, uh, it's very concentrated, which means, you know, for me, I might only get, you know, maybe one name into the portfolio a year um, if I'm lucky. Um, 
there's a lot that ends up on the cutting room floor, right? Like there are a lot of stories, a lot of situations that that have never met the light of day. And you know, the funny thing is, you know, TPG and, and J Crew. I mean, this was 2010, 2011, right? This was years ago. I mean, th- that was one of the situations where I, I just you know observed, you know, firm relational saw saw what happened in the proxy, and um, I thought it was fascinating, right? Like I, I like to joke, like that's when when my eyes you know years after you know being a relational that's when my eyes really opened as far as what this stuff was all about and um you know using using the seat of compensation committee chair to help uh you know shape and influence uh, not only um you know what a company does but also potentially use it as a way to encourage or influence a deal to go your way um it's it's a very you know it's a very powerful um you know realization when when, when you figure it out and, and it was like from that point on that i was like okay i i need to keep track of these guys and, and study these guys because clearly they, they a they know what they're doing and 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 b they're 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 willing you know to to push the envelope a bit i'm not saying they're doing anything wrong or illegal but like you know, you, you do enough of these things, you start developing a list of you know, folks and organizations you should probably keep an eye on um, because at some point they're going to give you an opportunity to participate alongside. So you, you, you point out that they had they were very good at timing their option grants. So it's a good example of spring loading that they'd, they'd make a grant and then often there'd be uh, an event that occurred after the grant, like in very, very close to the grant where they'd get this pop in the price. Making equity grants seems to be a, a gray area where you're allowed to do that because the SEC investigates one of the guys who seems to be aware that the buyout of J. Crew is coming up, and he transacts on that basis. But there are equity grants around the same time that don't attract any attention at all. It's funny, isn't it? Like there, there are very clear, stringent insider trading laws, and and even companies have very clear insider trading policies, but they don't have. Um, insider equity grants is is for whatever reason one of those categories and topics that just don't really you know get it doesn't get much scrutiny and there's a lot of like you said there's a lot of gray area and, and just kind of going back to that j crew example you know j crew their their compensation granting uh policy was pretty much we'll grant you equity on um I, you know, I'm going off memory. I think we'll we'll grant you equity on the 15th of the month. Like, so if if they approve a grant, it, it gets granted on the next like you know month on the 15th. So if you actually have visibility that hey they're going to kill earnings uh, pretty soon here, we can actually approve grants like on the that will be granted out on the 15th of the month right before earnings. And so, you know, like literally, if if you're to study the grant patterns at, at J Crew. At, you know, during that time, that's literally what they did. It was like if there was good earnings on on deck, they granted earnings. I mean, they granted equity right before, and it was like clockwork. So going back to that SEC investigation, I mean, I think this was 2009. Yeah, it's a 2009 one. 2009. So they granted equity. I want to say like April 2009, which I think anyone who who was around that time, I mean, this was the bottom of the market in general. And um, they granted equity only to see, you know, the next earnings was, I think, May, um, where the stock popped 40% on earnings because they had really good numbers. Um, around, like, like, as you mentioned, around the same time, um, you know, an, uh, a J Crew, I don't want to say a J Crew executive, but someone high up who had access to the same numbers uh, did a transaction um, knowing that the numbers were going to be good at earnings and, and they got caught. Right by the SEC, but it to your point, it's funny because the compensation committee and the board saw the same numbers, decided to grant equity on that information, no problem. <laughs> Man, you know, a manager sees the same numbers, tries to do an options trade, you're 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 getting banned, you're getting barred by the SEC, you're settling, you're paying fines, and the only difference is he tried to buy you know equity, whereas a compensation committee approved this equity grant. And then going back to kind of our conversation, that equity grant was signed off by general counsel, by you know all the advisors. It was okay. It's 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 legal. And same information. 
you've got a similar story with stamps, and I love the. I think the takeaways play the man, not the cards. Yes, I mean, over time, going back to kind of the the you know recognizing the sound of engines and sexing chicks. Who knew that would be a theme <laughs> of, of this podcast? Um, eventually, when when you uh, you know, look at enough of these situations. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm about to violate my recommendation of mosaic theory and focus on industries you understand. Eventually, you just kind of recognize behavior, right? You, like um, whether it's stamps or I think uh, more recently I did one on Vaxart, which was a biotech, and I don't cover biotech. But at a certain point, you just kind of recognize behavior and you recognize some decisions or some um grants just seem out of place and it, it becomes a game like it's you know if you're really good at poker and, and i'm terrible at poker um you can you can you know to a certain extent start reading uh you know reading the man and not the cards where if, if you kind of understand um you know what they're trying to do and, and kind of the, the the tells and, and the quirks uh, of, of of that decision you, you can just start you know drafting off of that decision making it's not perfect um, all the time, but uh, you you can definitely you can definitely nail the intent of, of some of these grants. And and the point being is, I I might have no idea what's going on in this industry or what's recovering or what's improving, but I I can recognize someone who believes something good or bad is about to happen here, right? Like you you see a guy goes all in, like. Um, assuming they're a very amateur player, you can kind of tell the difference between if, if they're trying to bluff you or like, oh yeah, they got pocket aces. Um, and, and governance is, is, is a lot like that to a certain extent because, you know, at the end of the day, people just can't help themselves sometimes. You, you've got, a th- the, the third example is the Green Sky, the busted IPO. Uh, mm-hmm. do, what, what, what's Green Sky do? So Green Sky is a um, fintech uh, company, which I think anyone who covers fintech like immediately, like kind of rolls their eyes when when you see a fintech company with with a growth multiple, um, you know, look out. But uh, Green Sky helps uh, uh, provide loans to um, consumers who want to do like home improvement projects. You know, you want to put on a new roof. Um, they provide kind of the uh, ability for these contractors to offer these loans to uh, consumers to help. You kind of fulfill, um, you know, uh, or help pay for that project initially, and, and you know, in, as a consumer, that makes sense. I mean, I had to, you know, replace a roof recently, and like I necessarily, I couldn't take out, you know, home loan to do that. I was like, oh man, I have to take out, you know, cash and and pay for it myself. So I was like, okay, this this is a a useful product. The 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 challenge is, um, you know, fintech and and you know, how to fund these businesses. It's, it's a very, it's, these are very difficult businesses to operate, right? From a funding growth, um, you know, risk perspective and you're balancing all these things. And, and as you kind of, you know, deal with this dynamic of trying to fund these transactions, green sky trying to fund the, you know, cause they have to get money from somewhere to, to fund their loans. Um, you, you get into situations where, like, if if you lose a uh, a deal with one of your with one of your financial institutions, that's going to hurt the stock, right? Because that implies you can't hand out more loans, which means the stock, you know, growth is going to slow down, and you might have to, you know, uh, take on, you know, a, a different lending source with more punitive terms. It, it just it becomes kind of this uh, a, a spiral. So, you know, Green Sky, I think when you look at, you know, ever since they've gone public. It's always been kind of this, um, you know, dynamic of, of trying to pursue this greenfield, you know, opportunity, um, while you know, kind of dealing with the realities of, of you know, financing operations. And and when you kind of study, you know, the challenges of, of that, um, you start to see that okay, well, this thing's a busted IPO. You're you're the leader of this company. How do I get my people incentivized, right? Well, you're probably going to give them retention grants at some point. Okay, well, I know I'm going to have to give them retention grants. When do I give them retention grants? Well, you probably want to give them retention grants when you have good visibility on something positive is about to happen, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think you know that that could be good practice for for the people that you you value in, in your company. Um, well, if 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 you're going to do that, I mean, I ha- hypothetically, if you know I'm CEO and I want to you know keep you. Uh, 
I'm I'm gonna go listen. I know the stock is has messed up, but I think I think we're we're about to you know, you know turn things around. We we have some really nice you know things on the way, and and you'd be aware if it's like let's you know let me grant you some equity you know to keep you around and, and keep you incentivized because I know your grants from the IPO are underwater. Um, I mean, this is kind of you know just kind of qualitative like you know conversational type. I mean, you can envision this conversation happening over and over again in corporate America. Um, and, and you do it right. And, but if you know, that's the dynamic from the, from the outside, you're like, this is a busted IPO. They just gave retention grants out of the blue. They're talking about, you know, these priorities that they need to fix. It's not perfect, but there might be an opportunity here to, to trade alongside this, this situation. And you gave that as an example of, uh, you can't manipulate the strike, but you can manipulate the number of target shares that are issued. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to realize you can actually manipulate the strike, but that's a, that's a totally separate company. Um, there are, there are ways to, um, so just kind of, I guess, first principles when, when, when you're doing equity compensation, normally what companies do is they, they come up with a target value for your shares. And, um, you know, based on that target value, then they determine how many shares to give you based on, based on the grant date uh, price. So, um, you know, if, if your target's a million bucks and, and you know, divide by the grant date, there's a number of shares. In, in the case of, you know, a place like Green Sky, there, there's a, actually a lot of flexibility as far as, you know, when you want to determine the share count. So in, in the case of, you know, a company like Green Sky or anywhere else, let's say your target value is a million bucks, but you also know that um, you have good news on the way. Well. The stock is trading at five bucks. Let's let's use five bucks to determine the number of shares to give you, and then okay, now we now that we've locked in the number of shares, we'll officially grant you the shares after the good news comes out when it's ten bucks or seven bucks, and so it's 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 a very subtle, quirky you know decision um, to do it that way, and you don't figure it out until after the fact, until the like you can't figure that out in real time. Like I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to figure that. But you know, come proxy season. You see how they do the they do the incentive structure and the calculation of shares. You go, oh wow, that that is one way to kind of juice. You know, you can get an extra twenty percent of shares by doing that that way. And you can't trade on that information. But the lesson there is, depending on who is on that compensation committee or who made that decision, you you lock that away for future reference. Now you know going forward, people you know people affiliated with that company or that committee might be compelled to do certain things at other places. So you start seeing that pattern recognition of when you start seeing, um, you know, dark art style, you know, decisions at one place, it doesn't stay there, right? You, you go, you know, you're on the board of multiple companies. You're going to suddenly make a suggestion going back to the Ben Horowitz comment, recommending backdating. It's like, Oh yeah, we did it at my old firm. You know, a bunch of companies do it. PwC signed off on it. We should do it here. And it's the same dynamic happening right now with spring loading and, and, and bullet dodging and, and these kind of quirky, you know, calculations. The practitioners of uh, dark arts, you follow the practitioners. And so I guess one of the takeaways is you got to look for these out-of-cycle equity grants. That's kind of a pretty good signal that maybe there's something coming. You know, out-of-cycle, I mean, out-of-cycle or I don't even actually look for out-of-cycle. I like looking at situations where um, there's a massive sell-off because in general, when there's a massive sell-off, there's a lot of focus at these companies to turn around the operations, to kind of um, focus and right-size priorities and strategies. This is, I mean, this is fundamental analysis 101, right? Um, complementary to, to that, uh, you know, refocus is you also reassess how you want to compensate your team for this kind of new go forward plan. And so when you have a dynamic where you see a massive sell off, you know that intuitively they're going to want to uh, make changes to their operations cuz listen anyone running a company that sees a you know 30 40% you know trade down they're going to make changes like it's it's just even even if you you have conviction on the strategy you know you have to make changes cuz your shareholders are yelling at you and and you're feeling the heat. So you, you take that dynamic and, and then you realize, okay, there's off-cycle grants going on in addition to the sell-off. You know that 
they're going to be incentivized to make sure the grants are um, more around the time of the turn than like no one's going to grant equity into a falling knife, right? Like investors, you know, we have to take that chance. We hit a falling knife. You're not, you're not going to grant equity and then <laughs> pull the bandaid and reset expectations to cause the stock to obliterate another 40%, right? You're not going to explicitly do that. You might do it after the fact because that's just the, the dynamic of, of the situation and, and things got worse than you expected, but you're not going to voluntarily do that stuff. So when, when you're looking off cycle grants, the first thing you should ask is what is the fundamental business case for why, you know, the company would be bullish to grant around this time, right? Like, and from there you can kind of figure out, okay, these, these are very interesting or not. Let's uh, let's change tack a little bit. Talk about DoorDash. Got an IPO uh, potentially coming up here in the near future. Um, food delivery is a really tough business. Food delivery sucks, as you say. Um, but they ha- they figured out some interesting wrinkle with the service fee and tax. Can you explain what DoorDash is and and what the what what they figured out? Yeah. Uh, so you know the, the funny thing about starting the Substack is. I've learned it doesn't take too much to become a topic expert in things, apparently. Um, so now I'm a governance and food delivery guy. But you know, DoorDash, DoorDash is a it's a funny story just because. Um, uh, so food delivery sucks and, and full disclosure. So after relational, I actually worked at a long, short hedge fund um, uh, called SQN up, up in uh, San Francisco and probably my top idea there was to short Grubhub. Um, and, and the thesis at the time hasn't really changed all that much as far as like, hey, you have you have these really punitive kind of commission rates, you know, 20, 30%. Restaurants are already kind of razors thin margins. This is very difficult, like unsustainable type unit economics. And, and it's, um, you know, kind of put it all together, you know, Grubhub's uh, overvalued. And this was I want to say 2015. Um, obviously, I ended up kind of changing my mind. This is kind of one of those uh, stocks that I've, you know, at any given time have, have been either incrementally bearish or, or bullish, uh, depending on the impact. But it, it was a formative kind of experience to kind of study the space. You know, so fast forward, um, you know, t- uh, to today, you know, DoorDash, knowing that you know, the economics of, of this business can be very very brutal, um, just kind of studying, you know, someone like Grubhub. Uh, it was always interesting to follow those guys or, or even Postmates um, and, and just see how they got by. And, you know, DoorDash, one of their innovations, to, I don't know if you want to call it an innovation, but they're, they're the ones that kind of brought along the notion of a service fee, right? Your 10%, you know, the, the Twitter meme, like you're ordering a $10 burrito and, and the service fee is 20 bucks. Like, they they kind of they kind of introduced that concept, um, and and part of the reason they brought it, uh, you know, they introduced it was, um, uh, you know, before you could just mark up food to kind of make your margin, and then you know, lawsuits and and consumer complaints happened. So they, you know, as 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 a form of transparency, they pulled it out into into a service fee, um, where where things I guess got quirky, uh, and and what actually you know kind of caught my attention was. Um, you know, to to make to make the food delivery uh, economics work, like there there were only so many levers. And if you're not taking if you're not taking commission from a restaurant, which if for a lot of DoorDash's um, deliveries they weren't, like how do you how do you actually like you know fund these these deliveries? And and there were kind of two levers that that I figured out. And and the only reason I only figured it out was. Um, I was a big DoorDash order person and I used to, you know, like if, if, if you ever wonder why I, I'm so knowledgeable of food delivery, it's because uh, one day I realized that DoorDash was doing this very aggressive gratuity tipping scheme. And I, and I felt, I felt uh, taken for, you know, taken along for a ride. It's like, you know, how, how, how dare you um, <laughs> uh, use my tips to subsidize these rides. And I think, I think I wanted a $12 refund um for for my tips and and they like wouldn't give me the refund and out of curiosity like this is weird like you won't give me a 12 dollar refund like this isn't like a like a diff like 
like normally you deal with Domino's or Grubhub, they'll, they'll just give you a refund. It's, it's not a big deal, but it's like, you won't give me a refund. What's going on here. And, and literally that led me down the rabbit hole to figure all this stuff out. So if, if DoorDash is wondering why, why in the world I wrote about them, it's because they didn't give me a $12 refund. Let that be a uh, lesson. <laughs> um, but w- w- what you learned is, you know, the levers to, uh, and, and they changed their gratuity policy. So uh, back then, even a, like, I want to say even a year ago, what, what would happen is, you know, they tried to um, make, make the income drivers earn more stable, which I think is, is a great um, idea. The, the challenge is, how, how do you implement it? And, and the way they implemented it was, we will guarantee you, you know, some amount, five bucks minimum. Um, but if, if you end up getting tipped more than, than the five bucks, then you're, you're really only just getting the tip. But if the customer isn't tipping, then you get the five bucks. It, it was, they, they gamified it in a way where they, they knew how much the tip was up front, but they, they kind of gamified it where it's like, we promise you at least five bucks knowing, you know, on the back end that the tip was going to be, you know, eight bucks or, or whatever. So, um, that was, you know, that was a big deal because if you can reallocate delivery fees and 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 those dollars, you know, to other deliveries, right? It suddenly you have um, just much more sustainable unit economics, which you know they were able to kind of help drive, you know, the, their growth and you know, they, you know, for them it was the right decision, right? You're, I don't know where they're at right now, fifteen billion dollar valuation, like they. You know, literally, if you lined up when they started doing that with with um, you know, their valuation, it was like they went from a billion to fifteen billion. You know, a lot of it on that, but they've had you know escape velocity as well. But you know, the other lever they they use was sales tax, right? Like, um, and and how do you calculate sales tax? And and this is actually one of those like unsettled things. Um, you know, Grub, so Grubhub will charge you sales tax on all your fees, more or less delivery fees, service fees, the cost of food. They're, they're going to, you know, in California, it's like, I think it's like eight to 10% sales tax. They'll apply it for everything. Someone like DoorDash will only apply it to your, um, food. I, I don't, I don't even think they apply it to their service fees. If my memory's correct. So there, there's actually, you know, depending on the order size, there's, there's going to be, you know, up to, you know, it could be 50 cents a dollar delta on, on some of these transition, you know, head to head, same restaurant, same, um, you know, same order between a Grubhub and, uh, and, uh, you know, a, a DoorDash and, and that, and that delta in savings typically was enough for them to squeeze in their 10% service fee, right. Or, or whatever service fee they had in place versus at the time Grubhub doesn't charge. Well, they charge one now, but at the time they didn't charge a service fee, but, Somehow, you know, some way DoorDash was always competitive with Grubhub on these orders. And, and part of it was, how do you treat your sales tax? And if you treat it a little bit more differently, you can get away with charging a 10% service fee and having, you know, the same out-of-pocket cost versus Grubhub, who didn't because they were collecting a commission, you know, from the restaurant. And it um, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, whoa, that, you know, that was really interesting. And I think there's still... You know, it's it's still a little bit of political football um, for DoorDash, and you know, especially with kind of COVID nineteen happening, it's like there is you know, if assuming Grubhub's approach to sales tax is correct, there is potentially an argument the that the largest sales tax evader in San Francisco might be DoorDash during this COVID-19 stay-at-home brouhaha. Like, I don't know if that's the case, but like, it, it just depends on how you treat that sales tax. But you can you can see how this could turn into political football very quickly, you know, no different than, you know, drivers are employees and, and all these other quirks. So I don't think they're necessarily out of the woods with this, you know, arbitrage that they're still doing. Um, but, uh, you, know, they're, they're, it's, you know, there's a saying that I have where, you know, people kind of celebrate fake it till you make it in, in the startup world. And in and, and a lot of these kind of grayer decisions, it's, it's kind of a dynamic of scale now settle with society later. Right. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, okay. May, maybe this isn't the correct interpretation, but we're now a $15 billion company and we can settle it for less. And, and you know, for them, that's the right economic decision. Something like the uh, the Uber model, where they they just do it and then try and uh, after the fact they'll just figure it out. 
well, they'll figure it out or they'll settle it or, you know, the, they will they'll, they will work with the regulators to um, uh, to, to come with the right resolution. And, and you know, listen, like Uber you know, to break up kind of the 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 hold the taxi industry had on, on all these cities, it, it took a little bit of um, moxie and 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 uh, vision and, and a willingness to take that that risk, you know, that. Okay, you know, once once customers get used to pushing a button and a car shows up, that's not going away, right? Like you can you can try to regulate that or say like you know rideshare is gonna you know you know be hit hard or or, or whatever, but you're not going to take that fundamental feeling of being able to open your phone and, and have a car show. It's up. the superior now, experience. There's no doubt superior. about that. So now it's like okay, well yeah, they they ignored all the laws and and they you know they they screwed over the the taxi industry, but here we are they're not going to go away so we're going to have to settle and that you know that was you know probably the the right outcome you know in hindsight. Yeah, I, I love it. I love all of the, uh, I learned a lot reading through those uh, those posts of yours and I'll make sure I link through it to all of them in the in the show notes. But you've got this, just a, I just wanted to leave it on this final point. You've got this great, uh, you've got the great Pablo Picasso quote about turpentine. Do you want to, do you want to give it? Do you, do you remember it? <laughs> so I, I love making Picasso references um, only, only because, you know, when people look at his paintings over the years, you know, we're all inspired or, you know, we, we love looking at his art, but like, you know, when, when you think about kind of his history, it's like when he, when he first got started, um, uh, you know, he, he, he painted like you would think, you know, someone painted just like lifelike, very, you know, specific, very, um, uh, real paintings. And over time, you know, he took a lot more creative license, uh, on, on what he was seeing in his eye and, and expressing things. And, and I always, I always love that kind of, you know, that, that quote he, he talks about, you know, uh, you know, when, when critics get together, they talk about form structure uh, of, of these paintings. When, when artists get together, they, they talk about where to get the cheapest turpentine. And, and the point being you have critics who, and, and observers who are, are trying to apply, you know, very rigid check, you know, checklists structures on how, things are supposed to be and, and you know the artist isn't uh, constrained necessarily to to the rules right they're they just they just want to keep doing what they're doing and, and express themselves and, and do their art and but you know their limiting factor is turpentine you know it's <laughs> it's 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 the building blocks and and you know governance in a lot of ways when, when you when you study like these decisions it's um i'm, I'm not going to say it's art but it, it, it there really is something to be said about you know your casual observer you know the ESG uh, person who's trying to checklist you know best practices and what's right uh, and and what's the best way of doing things and and the reality is you know the, the real practitioners of, of governance they're they're kind of artists they they realize you know there's a lot more gray area here it's not necessarily right and wrong um, I mean there's there's arguments that things you know are inappropriate, but you know, it, it depends, right? If, if you're, if, if you're, you know, staring into the abyss as a company and you need to keep people motivated and get certain things done, um, yeah, that, that's a tough dilemma, right? And it's kind of that, you know, the turpentine is, you know, the grants, the equities, the, the incentive structures, how, how you want to, you know, bring in people and, and, and rally them around you know, something. So, you know, I, I've always kind of loved that, that quote, uh, as far as, you know, how to look at these things, right? Like, you know, when, when you achieve, I, I guess this is kind of my last thought, but, you know, when, when you achieve a certain level of expertise, um, you're, you're, you're genuinely given kind of two choices. You can either uh, be a critic because you're the expert, you know what's right, you know what's good, right? So you can criticize or you can, um, you can evangelize, right? You can try to make it a little more accessible to people celebrate don't you know don't be a gatekeeper and 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 discourage people or criticize people because they're you know trying to do something and and that's at the end of the day kind of what i'm trying to do with you know writing about governance is you know i know this stuff i could have been i could have been a critic like you know like you could be a dark artist too (laughs) i could be a dark artist but i i want to evangelize right i want i want to kind of share and 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 show people like there's there's some interesting things here and um you, you can learn a thing or two uh, not only about governance, but but at the end of the day, it's a reminder that you know these mindless companies, 
you know, from the outside, they look like these, you know, mindless you know, kind of, you know, uh, machines, but they're people pulling the levers behind the scenes. And just remember, they, they're pulling levers. They have, they have their own, you know, behaviors, aspirations, fears, interests, and, and they get expressed, you know, through these companies. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, Mike. If folks want to follow along or get in contact with you, how do they do that? And make sure you mention your Substack. Yeah, so um, I, I guess I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, my username is nongap, and uh, N O N G A A P for, yep. for the non non finance accounting people. Great, great Twitter I'm, account. I'm, yeah, uh, I also own nongap.com, which is why I chose nongap as my Twitter handle. Um, and then you can find me on Substack. So I think nongap.substack.com. Uh, but uh, yeah. Well. Uh, thanks so much for spending time uh, with me chatting about this stuff. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Mike Pong Malai, non-gap. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. <laughs>